The following message is by Pastor Jason Pauley. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. So before we begin today's message, I want to give you a, a, an overview of the preaching schedule for the next few months. As you know, last week was the first week of Advent, and Advent simply means coming. And it's the period of time beginning four Sundays prior to Christmas where we observe a time of waiting and expectation. Uh, It's a time of waiting and expectation leading up to Christmas Day, the celebration of the birth of our Savior. So it was appropriate that we finished up our sermon series on Haggai last week with a message about a coming king. And as we move forward, we're going to continue along the same theme with a king who is coming for the remaining three weeks of Advent, plus actually one additional week just after Christmas, and as we look at the servant songs of Isaiah. So we're going to be looking at the servant songs in Isaiah, which talk about a coming servant. And then, Lord willing, we'll kick off 2015 with a seven-week series on the seven churches of Revelation. And beyond that, I don't know, you'll have to come and find out, I guess. We'll figure that out as we move forward. We'll get back to preaching through a book of the Bible. It'll probably be Philippians, uh, but I'm not 100% sure of that at this point. So stay tuned on that. But since we're going to be spending the next several weeks in Isaiah, I want to give you an introduction and a background to the book of Isaiah. The prophet's ministry spanned from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. Now remember, Haggai's ministry, where we were the last few weeks, Haggai took place in 520 B.C. So we're backing up in history about 150 to 200 years. Isaiah writes 150 to 200 years prior to Haggai. The events of Haggai, remember, were written about the return of the people to the land of Judah. So they were released from Babylonian captivity and they were returning to the land of Judah while Isaiah actually records the events leading up to and into Babylonian captivity. Uh, However, even though the book of Isaiah predicts and records the overthrow of the nation of Judah, and and ultimately their Babylonian captivity, it also offers great hope. And that's what we're going to focus on over the next several weeks. In fact, the word salvation in the book of Isaiah occurs 26 times, compared to only 7 times in all of the other Old Testament uh, prophets. So 26 times Isaiah records the word salvation. Thus, one of the central themes in Isaiah is the salvation, the deliverance of God's people. And within this promise, you need to know that within this promise of deliverance, there's this promised servant who is coming. And Isaiah says, a servant is coming. His name is going to be Cyrus. And Cyrus is going to be this king, and he's going to release my people. He's going to be my servant. Even though he doesn't know me, I'm going to use him as my servant. And Cyrus is the same Cyrus we talked about in Haggai, where he released the people from Babylonian captivity, let them return to Jerusalem so they could rebuild the temple. And while Cyrus was used of God, there's an even greater servant that's referred to in the book of Isaiah. So we see this idea where Isaiah talks about his people being his servant. He talks about Cyrus being his servant. But he says, but there's an even greater servant who is coming in whom you should hope. And we'll see in our text that this servant will do far greater things than Cyrus ever would. That this servant, he'll have a ministry that will be like no other. It'll be far greater than the servant Cyrus. So without further ado, let's look at our text this morning. Isaiah 42, verses 1-9. through If you'll stand with me 
for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations." to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things before they spring forth. I proclaim them to you. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So in this passage, God tells us to behold, to to look upon, literally, to look upon His servant. The language is important because it shows that this coming servant is going to stand in sharp contrast to both Cyrus and to the people's idols. If you look just a Page or two ahead in Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 29, we read this. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. So he's saying, to the, he's actually, God is speaking to the idols, and he says, okay, idols. Present your case. Tell us what's going to happen. Why don't you tell us what already happened? Why don't you tell us what's going to happen in the future? Verse 23, Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. He says, behold, verse 24, you are of no account. So he's saying, look to the idols. These idols that you have built, they are nothing. And then, in chapter 42, he says, behold, behold my servant. Those idols, they're nothing. They're a delusion. But my servant, behold him. You see, the people were looking to these idols to rescue them. They knew that that they were going to be dragged off, that they were being dragged off into captivity. And they would fashion these idols out of wood. They'd cut them out of stone. They'd build them out of wood. And they would worship an image that they made and look to that image to deliver them. And God says, these idols, they can't do anything. Instead, behold, look upon my servant. 
who was coming. And even as the people began to look upon this servant, they began to look to King Cyrus and actually made him an idol in some respects. But God says, no, there's a greater servant who is coming. Look at verse 42.1 with me again. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Many people are referred to as God's servants in Scripture. The nation of Israel is referred to as God's servant. Individuals who are called to proclaim the message of God are referred to as his servants. So the prophets are sometimes referred to as servants. And even Cyrus, as we mentioned, who's a pagan king, was referred to as a servant of the Lord. Because the term servant can and is used of all those who represent God in some manner or task. However, this particular servant, the servant that's spoken of here in Isaiah 42, he's unique. Listen to what God says about his relationship with this coming servant. He says, number one, I uphold him. Number one, he says, I uphold him. See, in the last chapter, in chapter 41, God said that he would uphold his servant Israel. Isaiah 41, 8 through 10, he says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, whom you have taken from the ends of the earth and called to its remotest parts, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will surely help you. Surely I will uphold you with my right hand. So God says, in the same way to this coming servant, He says, I will uphold this servant just as I have upheld my people. He's going to strengthen, enable, and give victory to this coming servant. Number two, He says, He is my chosen one. He is my chosen one. Just as God referred to His people as the chosen people of Israel, so also He addresses this coming servant and says, He is my chosen one. In fact, this chosen one is the chosen one that was promised throughout Scripture. Look at Psalm 89, verses 3-4. through Psalm 89, 3-4 says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So when he says, he is my chosen one, he's not just talking about being chosen like the people were chosen. He's talking about being the specific chosen one. And, verse, and thirdly, he says, my soul delights in him. Just as God's people are called again and again, and again in Scripture, we are called to delight in the Lord and let His laws permeate our lives, so also we see that God delights in those who seek Him. Proverbs 11.20 says, The perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord, but, blameless in their, but the blameless in their walk, they are a delight to Him. And God says, My soul delights in this coming servant. Number four, lastly, God says, I put My Spirit on Him. So he says, he says, I uphold him. He's my chosen one. My soul delights in him. And then he says, I have put my spirit on him. The idea of God's spirit being upon or in his servants, again, is not exclusive to this passage. Ezekiel 2.2, he says, And he spoke to me, Ezekiel, he spoke to me, and as he did so, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. 
So the Spirit entered Ezekiel. And just as God's Spirit was with Ezekiel and the other prophets, He says, So my Spirit will be with this servant who is coming. So how can we say that this servant is unique? What can set him apart from all the other people? If each of these things can be said of other servants, why should this servant receive any special notice? Well, first of all, notice the language. It clearly communicates a special relationship between this servant and all others. Between this servant and God. When all these attributes are strung together, we have an amazing picture of God's relationship to this servant. He says, look, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. It becomes clear God is promising someone very special. And secondly, it's important to see that God is clearly contrasting this servant to that which the people are worshiping, their idols. He's contrasting this servant to their idols. And by saying, he's doing this by saying, Do not look upon these objects of false worship. Instead, look upon my coming servant. He's telling them that this coming one will be worthy of their worship. And if we have any doubts about that, all we need to do is look at the ministry of this coming servant. What will this servant do? He says, well, first of all, at the end of verse 1 we read, He will bring forth justice to the nations. He says, this coming servant, He's going to bring forth justice. So the first point in your sermon outline is, He will bring forth justice. In fact, this idea is mentioned three times in the first four verses of this text. Look at verses 1-4 through again. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. See, the idea presented here is that this servant will always act and rule in a manner consistent with God's will. That this servant is going to be unlike any other king any other ruler, including Cyrus, that he will always do that which is right. And that his rule is going to extend to the ends of the earth. That his, his justice will be brought to all nations. This isn't the first time that Isaiah mentioned the righteousness of this coming servant. You don't need to turn there, but listen to the words of Isaiah 11, verses 1-11. through 11. He says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will judge by what he sees, and he will not judge by what he sees, nor make a decision by what he hears, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins. And faithfulness will be the belt about his waist. See, Isaiah had already promised there's a coming servant who's going to rule and reign in righteousness. He's going to establish justice in the earth and to the people. What a sweet, sweet promise. Their lives have been turned upside down. 
They're being taken away, taken from their homes, taken into captivity, taken some 900 miles away. It's like going from Maine to Virginia. Um, Not that I would know anything about that. It's like they've been taken some 900 miles away into captivity. Taken from everything they know by by an evil nation. And God says, a servant is coming. One is coming who's going to reign and rule and he's going to make all things right. But also notice that Isaiah says that he would do so with a gentle and a quiet spirit. Isaiah says, He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. You see, unlike other kings, like like Cyrus and others, this servant would not need to stand in in the streets and proclaim and cry out his authority. He would not need to crush those who are weak. Instead of oppressing those who are weak, this, bruised, this, this servant would come to the bruised reed, the faintly burning wick, and he would care for them and defend them. It says, this servant will care for those who have seen injustice, those who are weak and those who need a loving touch. So before we go any further, we have to ask, who is this servant that Isaiah promised? And it's probably become pretty clear to you by now But in case there's any doubt in your minds, the Gospel of Matthew makes it emphatically clear who this coming servant is. Look at Matthew 12, verses 9 through 21. Matthew 12, verses 9 through 21. We get a picture. We see who this servant is. Departing from there, he... Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take it out, take it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, stretch, he said to this man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them all and was warned. He warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through, through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit on him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed, a man with a crippled hand, right? He will not break off, and a smoldering wick, those who are sick, he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in His name, the Gentiles shall hope. You see, Matthew points to this verse in Isaiah and says, that was Jesus. He came to establish justice. He came not to to oppress the poor and the weak, but instead to heal those who needed healing, to bring spiritual health to those who needed it. 
Matthew says Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. Jesus was the servant that Isaiah said would come. And if that doesn't convince you, listen to the words. Think of the words when Jesus was baptized. And what did God the Father say to Jesus? He said, this is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Almost identical words to what He said in Isaiah. My beloved servant. The one in whom my soul delights. Or what did He say at the transfiguration when Jesus went up onto the mountain and He was transfigured and His his body shone with a great white light and God came and said, My beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. Do not miss who this servant is. For this servant in Isaiah is none other than Jesus. So let's continue to look at the unique ministry of this servant. The, the first point in our sermon outline is that he will bring forth justice. But then Isaiah also says he will be given as a covenant and a light. Verses 5 through 9. Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also uphold you, hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I declare them to you. See, in this section, Isaiah makes it clear. It's not the imaginary voice of some idol who is speaking. It's not some imaginary voice of a a statue, but instead, it's the one true living God. In fact, the section begins with, Thus says God the Lord. Or literally, more literally, the God whose name is Yahweh. He says, thus says God Yahweh, the one who created the earth. He goes on, he says, you know, you know, the one who created the earth, the heavens and the earth, the one who stretched them out, the one who brought forth life from it, the one who gives breath and life to all people. In other words, thus says the great I am, the one true God, the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. So there's no mistake about who's speaking. And he speaks this God. God of the universe. The great I am speaks directly to this servant. And he says, I have called you in righteousness. I'll hold you by the hand and watch over you. And then I'm going to make you a covenant to the people and a light to the Gentiles or a light to the nations. So what does it mean when he says these things? Well, let's consider a covenant to the people. The term covenant simply means agreement or contract or promise. God had made covenants with Moses and Abraham and others. But here, God doesn't say, I'm going to make a covenant with my servant. He says, his servant will be given as a covenant to the people. So he says, I'm going to make a covenant with the people and... The servant, Jesus, is going to be my covenant. In other words, He will be the means through which I will establish this contract. 
Isaiah doesn't really give us any details on how this might happen at this point. Um, However, we know from the New Testament that Jesus accomplished this through his sacrificial death on the cross. See, Isaiah is just looking into the distant future, and he sees pictures that God is giving him, and God's giving him his word, and he sees things, they're just not clear yet. And God says, I'm going to give you a servant, and this servant is going to be given as a covenant to the people. But when we read in Matthew, Matthew 26, 27 through 28, we read about the Last Supper. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, drink from it, this cup. Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, Jesus again says, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood. So this cup represents the new covenant that was established by me through my blood. Do this. Drink this cup. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me, the one who made this covenant possible. The one whose blood was poured out so that you could be forgiven. See, that's the covenant. That's the promise. That you will be forgiven. Not because you are righteous, but because His righteous blood was poured out for you. So in the book of Isaiah, God is letting His people know He's going to send a servant. And He's going to send a servant who will be given as a covenant. Now also, let's consider what it means to be a light to the nations. He says, this servant, He's going to be a covenant and a light to the nations. So while this servant will be the means through which God will establish a covenant with His people, a new contract, a new promise with His people, This servant will also be a light that directs people to that covenant. In other words, Jesus would shine as a light, directing all people, not only the Jews, but all people, toward the covenant that God has established. So the New Testament, in light of this, is full of references to Jesus being the light of the world. Listen to what Jesus Himself says in John 8.12. He says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Or listen to what Paul says in Acts 26. Paul, if you're reading through Acts 26, he's sharing his testimony with King Agrippa. And I love Acts because Paul shares his testimony again and again and again as you get toward the the end of Acts. And it's a picture of how powerful our testimonies can be. When we share what God has done in our lives, it's a powerful, powerful tool. And Paul does it again and again in Acts. And he's sharing with King Agrippa in Acts 26. And in verses 22 through 23, he says this, So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great. Can you imagine? Standing before the king and saying, I obtained help from God. And I stand to this day testifying to both small and great you, O king, stating nothing but what happened by the prophets and Moses, by what they said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer. And by that reason of his resurrection from the the dead, he says this, he, Jesus, would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He says Jesus is the light that directs you in the right relationship with God. So in Isaiah, God declares that this servant would be a light to the whole world. And he goes on and says, there'll be a light to the whole world 
to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out from the dungeon, and to free those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Make no mistake, this is not talking about Cyrus. The Jewish people certainly did not see Cyrus heal blind eyes. They didn't live in, prin- in prisons or dungeons. or They weren't trapped in the darkness of prison. God's talking about something much different here. But remember, God is speaking to people who are in captivity. He's writing to a people who are looking for a rescuer, a man, a servant, who would come and release them from Babylonian captivity. But this servant, the one spoken of in Isaiah 42, he's going to do far more than that. He's going to more than just release them to go home to their land. Instead, the blindness and imprisonment that the people need to be rescued from is not physical, it's spiritual. So this servant, he will come and he will rescue them from spiritual slavery. God's making a great promise here. That though you are enslaved to your sin, that though you're trapped in your sin, there's one coming, a servant coming, who will free you from this. It's a rather long passage, Isaiah 44, 9 through 19. I'm going to read that. We're going to look ahead, just a couple of chapters. If we look ahead to Isaiah 44, 9 through 19, Isaiah is explaining the, fool, the foolishness associated with worshiping idols. You see, if there's any doubt in our minds that idol worship is slavery, we need to examine what idol worship was to the people. So the people would fashion these idols and then they would build them and then they would worship them. And Isaiah actually brings our attention to the foolishness of what was happening. He says this, Those who fashion a graven image, an idol, are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. For the craftsmen themselves, the one who make these idols, are men. Let them, that's the idols, let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Go ahead, tell the idols. Why don't you gather together, idols, and stand up? Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood, he extends a measuring line, he outlines it with red chalk, he works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in his house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow, then it becomes something for man to burn. So he raises it. Grows these trees and it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warns himself and he makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest... He makes into a god. So he says, he grows this tree, he cuts the log in half, half of it he puts in his wood stove, and half of it he makes into a god and then worships it. 
He falls down before it and worships it. He also, he prays to it. And he says, deliver me, for you are my God. Verse 18, they do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of it in the fire. He says, you don't even realize, you don't even recall, I just burned half of this log in the fire, and I baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. If there's not a more accurate description, praise God for His word of what idol worship is. He says the people, they're taking these logs, they're cutting them in half, they're building this statue, and then they're worshiping it and praying to it and saying, deliver me, deliver me, O idol, from captivity. And that is sheer folly. It's spiritual blindness that somebody can do that and not even know what they are doing. And that's what the people were doing. And Isaiah comes, God comes through Isaiah, and he declares, a servant is coming. A servant is coming who will open people's eyes to the truth. He will make the blind see. He will be the one who will deliver them. Not their idols. He's going to deliver them. He'll be the light in the midst of darkness. He'll heal their spiritual blindness. He'll guide the people from all the nations into a right relationship with the one true God. And then as we look at our text one final time this morning, verses 8-9, through Isaiah 42, 8-9, we see God saying, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. God's pretty clear. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. I will not bow down to these graven images, nor should you. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And now, now I declare to you new things. Before they spring forth even, I'm declaring them to you before they even happen. There's something new, something great that's happening. God is letting them know that unlike the people's idols, he can predict the future. He says, he says, behold, the former things have come to, clap, come to pass. Now I declare to you new things. He says, I'm controlling the future. That is, these new things that I've declared to you, this deliverance through my coming servant, I'm going to bring it to pass. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring this to pass. So hope not in your idols, but hope in this coming servant. So in review, he says, there's a servant who's coming. I have a special relationship with him. And number one, he's going to bring forth justice. And number two, he's going to be given as a covenant and a light. And praise God, as we celebrate Advent, as we celebrate the coming of a king, that's exactly what they were doing. They were waiting for this king to come, waiting for him to bring forth justice and to be given as a covenant and a light. And we see an already but not yet fulfillment of this in Jesus. That Jesus has come. He came as a baby. He died. He lived and died for us. He was given as a covenant and as a light. He did bring forth justice. And He's reigning and ruling now. But His kingdom is not of this earth. But there is a day. And just as they waited expectantly for Jesus to come, so too we also wait for Him to return, to reign and rule on this earth. 
So he'll bring forth justice, Isaiah says, and he will be given as a covenant and a light. So how do we apply all of this at Harmony Bible Church? How do we apply all of this about this coming servant? Number one, we must rejoice for God's servant has come. We have to rejoice, recognizing that God has sent his servant. Just as we saw from the book of Matthew earlier, the coming servant was none other than Jesus. God sent his son, born of a virgin, to live a sinless life, to hang on a tree, and shed his own blood for the remission of our sins. But then, three days later, he rose from the dead. He was victorious over death. And he paid our sin debt so that we might live with him forever in heaven. You see, he has indeed opened the eyes of the blind. He's brought grace and mercy to the humble in heart, to the bruised reed and the dimly burning wicks of this world. Therefore, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and receive His grace. And if you have not done that, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, I would encourage you to come see Bill or me after the service so we can talk more about what that looks like. Place your trust not in idols, but instead in Jesus. Number two, once we have come to a place where we have received God's gift of salvation. I believe that's probably true of most of us, that we have received God's gift of salvation, and that's why we're here. We must continue to fix our gaze upon Jesus. We must recognize our tendency to adore and trust things other than God. You see, we we have to realize that when we do that, that is idol worship. Martin Luther said, that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself, I say, is really your God. So that to which your heart clings and entrusts itself, that's your God. Therefore, we must not think of ourselves as better than the idol worshippers of Isaiah's day. For while our, our idols may not be statues crafted out of wood, we still have a tendency to bow down to all sorts of things. Whether it's money or possessions or motorcycles. Somehow I fit motorcycles into every sermon. Whether... It's money, prestige, comfort, sex, a whole host of other things. We bow down before these things and we place them as important over and above God. And therefore, we must repent of our own idol worship. And we need to continue to behold, to look upon Jesus and Jesus alone. Number three, lastly, we need, just as the people of Isaiah's day were called to live in eager expectation, so we too must live in eager expectation. And the season of Advent is just that. It's a time of waiting. And I pray, I really pray this, that as we move closer and closer to Christmas, you're like a little child who just can't wait for Christmas to come. Not because of the great gifts you're going to get from family or from friends, but instead because Christmas is that much closer. Like we should hardly be able to contain ourselves. That's what Advent is all about. It's about getting excited because we know Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Praise God for that. But also, as we live each day, we should get more and more excited in the same way about His second coming. That every day that we live, we're that much closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Because we know that He's promised a day where He will fully establish his righteousness here on earth. 
He has established a day where He will return and reign and rule in righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. God, I pray that You'd be with us. That You would just encourage us. Encourage us as we wait eagerly for the return of Your Son. Encourage us as we behold, as we look upon Your Son, Your servant, Jesus. God, may we no longer worship and serve idols. Things that we have devised in our own minds is more important than You. Instead, may we behold, may we look upon Your servant each and every day. Father God, help us commit our lives to Him and to Him alone. God, we need Your grace to do that. God, I just pray and ask that You would quicken our hearts as we, as we await the Christmas the celebration of Christmas Day and the birth of your Son, but even more so as we await his return. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.